0: to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. This is the word of the Lord. One of the benefits of stepping back every now and then and taking in the full scope of what God is doing in history, doing it all in a single setting like we just did, one of the benefits is that you realize it's just way too big to sum up with any one word or idea. And so as you hear what God is doing, You hear different aspects, and as you hear those different aspects, there's a sense that they're building up to something bigger and bigger. And so he he tells you early that he's planning to defeat evil, absolutely going to crush evil. Then you get to hear a little bit later, that means he's going to bring justice and righteousness. There's going to be peace. There's going to be harmony until ultimately there's just joy left. And as God stacks promise on top of promise on top of promise, you walk away with hope but you also walk away with a sense of just how broken this world is because all of god's wonderful promises are against a very dark backdrop against the backdrop of a very broken world and that brokenness touches each one of us but it's also too big to sum up with one word or one idea and so you get this other kind of building as you go through scripture and you see how badly sin has ruined the world And so God talks about pain, and he talks about toil, talks about death, talks about darkness. His promises of redemption and restoration show how much he loves us, but they also at the same time underline just how much we need what he's doing. That's also a reminder to us that we've lived our entire lives in a world that hurts, a world that reaches out and that invades our lives, that interrupts us with things that we don't want and that we can't get rid of. It's a really important exercise for you, really important thing to watch how you respond when you get interrupted by the things in life that you don't want. Because those tell you a great deal about yourself. They tell you about what you really think is most important in life, and they tell you what you trust in to deal with the brokenness that you're experiencing right now. And they tell you what you're trusting in that will ultimately put everything right in the future. How you respond to the interruptions in your life tells you where you think you'll really find joy. And that tells you what you really think about God. Tells you how much weight you really put on all of those promises. That's what we learned from Anna. This is the only place in scripture that tells us about her, and you realize there's just a few short sentences. So what are you getting here? You're getting her entire life boiled down and compressed into a very tight summary God says here's what sums up Anna here are the most important events of her life here are the characteristics of who she is as a person he's giving you the essence of her and it makes you wonder makes me wonder what would God say about me if he just took a few short sentences to sum up my whole life what would he say about me what would he say were the key events What would he say were the dominant characteristics? Would would he mention the things that I think are important? (laughs) Or would he leave them out and focus on others? Where would he say the overall trajectory of my life is going? Would it show that I have understood reality the way he understands it? Would it show that I've lived a life really well? Or would God's summary of my life show that I've missed it? As you dig into Anna's just very few couple of sentences, you realize that she got it. She understood just how messed up this world really is. And she trusted that God's solution is what she really needed in this messed up world. So we're only going to look at two things this morning. We're going to look at two interruptions. We're going to look at one interruption toward the early part of her life, one interruption toward the latter years, and we're going to look at how she responded to each one first interruption was a tragedy verse 36 anna was advanced in years having lived with her husband 7 years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84 anna was personally acquainted with a dark world she'd only been married for 7 years and then her husband was taken away from her she was a widow that means he died Now, that's hard enough in our world. How do we think about marriage and and spouses? We tend to emphasize the romantic side of marriage. So we're likely to think, man, she she lost her romantic partner. She lost someone that she could lean on and be intimate with, both physically and emotionally. And that is a part of how Anna's world would have seen seen that as well. The Old Testament book, The Song of Solomon, it celebrates romantic love and relational intimacy. But her her society would have seen other things attached to her loss. They would have recognized that she lost her economic stability. They would have recognized she lost her physical security. You read the book of Ruth, or you study how widows were treated in the books of Samuel and Kings, and you realize that they were an especially vulnerable part of their society. When you learn that Anna lost her husband you realize that she understood firsthand what that was like or her society would also have understood marriage in a larger context recognizing that God gave marriage to the human race that he believed that Adam needed someone who was both suitable to him but able to partner to with him in what God gave him to do in what God gave the human race to do Now, does that mean that marriage is necessary for having meaning and purpose in life? You realize, no. Lives of Jesus, lives of Paul show us that. But there are some people that God thinks need to get married, a lot of people. And if God provided Anna with a husband, if he thought that she needed to learn to blend her life with her husband, that that was necessary for her earlier, that's another significant loss to her when her husband's no longer with her. When he died, all of the things that Anna had been relying on for those past seven years of her life, all of those were stripped away. All of her dreams, all of her plans of what life was going to be like going forward, they also died with him. Her life changed dramatically. It was interrupted. It's important to realize that that's not just some random roll of the dice. It's important to realize that God had something to do with it now God absolutely hates death you have to remember that read John chapter 11 you see Jesus standing outside of his friend's tomb outside of Lazarus's tomb and you realize by watching Jesus that God is absolutely offended at death at the death of someone made in his image God does not take death lightly He would not fit in well in our culture. He does not think that death is entertaining, that it's something to be packaged for us in a movie or in a video game. God does not think that you celebrate death for an entire month on your front lawn during October. God hates death. And at the same time, nothing happens in his world that he's not permitted to happen, that he's allowed to happen, that he has decreed will happen. So when Anna's husband died, God is still in charge of his world. Her husband's death did not lessen his glory, did not make him less holy, make him less worthy of being worshipped, didn't make him less good. Some of us struggle with that. My wife Sally was talking with a young woman this past month outside of our community, young woman who has a lifelong debilitating condition. This young lady says to Sal, why doesn't God heal me? I've asked him to over and over and over, and he doesn't. So I don't think he's any good. I'm not going to serve him. I'm not going to worship him. Now, what is she saying? She's saying that she is perfectly capable of deciding what is and is not good. She's saying that she has enough wisdom and enough intelligence enough data and information that she can make a full determination of what will be best for herself. And that if God does not agree with her, then by definition, he's not as good as she is, and he's definitely not worth her time or consideration. And all you have to do to see the hole in her logic is babysit a toddler for a couple hours. Because toddlers are what? They are absolutely certain, convinced at their stage of maturity that they know what is best for themselves. And they are equally certain that they know better what is best for them than you do. Someone once said that they have no idea that if you gave them everything that they wanted and let them do everything that they wanted, that they'd be dead in two hours. They don't know that at that stage of their lives, and they can't know that because they're not old enough yet to know what they really need and to know what they really don't. And yet they struggle to trust you when you say no to them. They struggle in that moment to believe that you are better qualified to decide what is best for them than they are, which means they're really no different than you and me. When I look back over my life, I am so thankful now that God said no to me so many times. He said no to me so many times over, so many other things that I wanted, and I was absolutely certain those were going to be really good things for me. I can think of several girlfriends that I wanted. Different jobs, different opportunities. Bigger bank account, sports car. Things that I was absolutely certain were going to be great for me at that time. Then I look back on them now, and I realize (laughs) they would have been really bad. I think about how a number of those girlfriends and jobs would have absolutely ruined me taken me away from the Lord. Think about a sports car that I'd have wrapped around a tree by now. Money that I was way too immature to handle then probably still am. All things that I wanted that God knew would have been bad for me. And so God was what? God was good to me when he told me no. But that makes me realize then that when he says no to me now, that that's also what's best for me, even though now I'm not mature enough to know that no is good. Which means that it makes me realize that he's been just as good when I I got things that I did not want. Times when he allowed the brokenness of this world to touch me personally. Times that were what? They were an invitation from him to me, not to turn away from him, but to press into him that much more. Anna had that invitation and she took God up on that she lost so much when her husband died but she didn't push God away because of it did not judge God as being less good than he was instead she did what she pressed into him how'd she do that verse 37 she did not depart from the temple worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day she worshiped she oriented her entire life around God constantly there in the temple because at that time that's where his presence could be found and she worshiped him she served him with fasting and prayer so what she's doing there in the temple has a goal it has a direction She's praying, she's talking to God, she's wanting to connect with him, she's orienting herself to him, but she's wanting a personal interaction with him. Which tells you that her fasting had that same direction, that same intention as well. Now what is fasting? In this context, probably wise to recognize it's both a protest and a longing. It's a protest, as one of the commentaries pointed out. It's a protest that says, this world is not right. And I'm not going to live like everything's okay. I'm not going to pretend that life is just, life as usual right now. I'm not going to pretend that this is normal life, because this is not, it's not normal to have your husband die after seven years. It's not okay. And I'm not okay with it. This world is badly out of whack. So I'm not going to do the normal things of life because I'm not okay with that. You see something similar in the Old Testament. King David has to run from one of his sons, and he has a friend. The friend is lame, lame uh, crippled in his legs, and friend wants to go with him, but he gets tricked and isn't able to actually do that. And when David comes back, he discovers that this man, his friend, hasn't trimmed his toenails or his mustache Washed, has not washed his clothes since the day David left what did he do he shared the hardships of his king's exile he couldn't go into the wilderness with David but he lived as though he did that was a protest he refused to carry on with life as usual refused to say everything's just fine it's not a big deal that the king's been forced out of his kingdom and his fasting is similar It was her physical rejection of how badly broken the world really is that death should steal people away. It was a protest, but it's also an acknowledgement, secondly, that this world just does not have what it takes in order for her to be okay. You have to remember here, she worships with fasting and prayer. Fasting and prayer are not the worship. They are how she's expressing her worship. They're how she expresses her heart to God. And so she comes to God physically hungry because she's saying, I can't find what I need on this earth to be filled up, to be satisfied. There's a hunger in me, an emptiness that this world just can't fill. It doesn't have resources that are big enough. I need more God. I need you. We all have a sense of that. We all have that hunger inside. God did not make us to be physically satisfied by this world. He made us so that we can only be filled up, really, when we are deeply satisfied in him. We all have that hunger. We all feel it like Anna did. A lot of the times, though, many of us try to fill it up with something else other than God. Some of us, we we do try to fill it up with food. I get that. We try to fill it up with a romantic partner, boyfriend, girlfriend, spouse. Try to fill it up by advancing our career, losing ourselves in sports. We try to fill it up with something from the larger world around us. And Anna lived in that kind of world. She lived in the middle of a lot of people who were always constantly using things in the larger world to try to fill themselves up. They all had an idea of what was wrong with the world, and they had an idea of what they needed to get in order to live in that world. So there were people like the Sadducees. They were the political movers and shakers of the day. They thought that influence and power would solve their problems of living in a broken world. That was their approach. On the other side were the Pharisees. They were the moralists. They thought that as long as no one could call them out for anything, that that would protect them from the evil in this world. Or there were the people known as zealots. That was a radical collection of people who thought that the only way to deal with the dark world is to just burn it all down, to destroy all the political systems and social structures, and then start all over again. Or there were other people who had different goals. There were the tax collectors, the pragmatists, they're just trying to game the system for whatever they can get out of it personally. There's the prostitutes who made a living by using other people's emptiness against them. Or there were just the regular people. There were crowds of people that Jesus says were harassed and helpless. People who just knew personally how messed up this world is. They're just trying to survive. They're just trying to get one more meal just to make it through. Anna was surrounded by all of these people. People who spent their lives trying to get something in this world that would help them deal with how bad it really is. And Anna just couldn't because that was no longer an option for her. You can think about it this way in some sense, that's an advantage for her. She couldn't try to satisfy her hunger with a husband anymore, or with all of the things that a husband would have meant in her world. Instead, she has had to figure out, I've got this need, I cannot satisfy it with the things in this world. And so she doesn't look for a God substitute. She goes to the temple, into the presence of God, crying out for something that you can't find in this world. She gives herself to the need that God put in her. She embraces that need, a need that can only be filled by Him. And so she comes to God fasting, letting herself feel the emptiness of this physical world. She comes to God expressing that she is not satisfied with the way this world has turned out, expressing that she's not about to rely on this world to give her what she needs but that she wants God instead, she needs him instead. And so she gave herself to pursuing him, trusting him to make things right, trusting him to fill her with himself. And notice that she is not sitting back, she's waiting, but she's not passive, she's really active. She's not just enduring a broken life that she didn't ask for. She's not enduring something unpleasant, she's pursuing someone who's great it's hungering longing i'd argue with hope (laughs) because you don't worship like this night and day into your eighth decade ninth decade without some sense that you matter to this god without some sense that he's going to come through without some sense that he's actually going to hear your prayer hear your heart, and respond to you. You don't worship like this unless you know that, what he, that he wants what you want, that he wants a world that's the way it's supposed to be, and that he wants that world far more than you do. You don't worship this way unless you know that this is a God who will break into your world more than any suffering ever has, because he wants to meet with you, and he wants to meet with you personally that he's willing to enter into your pain so that he can get rid of all of it, so that he can leave you more filled up than you ever thought you could be. What you do with your pain from living in this broken world, what you do with how this dark world interrupts you shows you what you trust in. What you do with pain shows what you think is really wrong with this world and it shows what you think is really big enough to deal with it. Anna let the pain of that first interruption drive her to the only one who could ever be enough for her. That suffering that she went through was the catalyst that drove her to what she needed. And God met her in her need. That's what you see in the second interruption that scripture tells us about. The one that took place toward the end of her life. In verse 38 anna is doing what has now become for her the new normal she's in the temple worshiping and it's there now that she's interrupted that's when jesus breaks into her world if you back up in the passage to verse 22 you learned there there were certain things in the law of moses that needed to be done when a child was born especially after a firstborn son And so mary and joseph have brought jesus to the temple in order to obey the command of god and anna comes up on them at that moment this aging prophetess and she knows in that moment that this child is the answer to all of her prayers verse 38 coming up at that very hour she began to give thanks to god and to speak of jesus to all who were waiting for the redemption of jerusalem Anna's response to a lifetime of suffering in a broken world and her response to a lifetime of seeking God is to give thanks, gratitude, because here at last God has let her see his solution to what's wrong with the world. He's let her see this is the one who will bring redemption to Jerusalem, that that's the capital of Israel, which really means then he's bringing redemption to Israel, he's bringing redemption to God's people. That's what she's been hungering for. She gives thanks for this. And that tells you what? She has not been seeking God for a new husband. Not been seeking him for a new romantic partner. She's not been seeking him for financial security. Not been seeking him for greater purpose in her life or career. Those are all too small for her to give herself to. Why is that? Because none of those can last. Death takes away every one of them. She's already experienced that firsthand. And so if she had spent her life seeking any of those things, a partner, money, purpose, then even if she got them, she knows that she's just going to only have them for a brief period of time. Because either at some point she's going to die or someone else will which would leave her where? That means that she would have spent her entire life trying to have something that would be gone. And she'd have nothing to show for it. Anna knew that she needed something that was death proof, something that would last beyond death. And so she wanted more. And when she sees Jesus, here it is, here's redemption. This is what gives her a thankfulness to God. This is why she thinks it's worth praising God, because she sees redemption. Okay, yeah, it's a fancy word. What, what does redemption mean? It means that somebody was in bondage. They were in slavery. It meant that their life was not their own, could not have any control over their own life, and that meant that they could not set themselves free. But redemption is when someone else would come along and redeem them pay whatever that price was for them in order to set them free Anna sees Jesus even as a baby and thankfulness pours out of her because here's the one who can pay here's the one who will pay will pay what to set God's people free from slavery that they can't get themselves out of which then begs the question what is it that's enslaving them what is stopping them from being able to live the life that they want to live and here again you realize that scripture will talk about our slavery in multiple different kinds of dimensions again they're not not one word not one idea that fills all of them anna's life focuses us on which aspect it focuses us on death on how death ruins all of your plans takes everything away from you how death keeps you from being able not just to live fully how death keeps you from being able to live at all. And death is one of those things that regardless of how much money you have, how much influence you have, regardless of how many friends you have, death is the one thing that you cannot buy your way out of. Regardless of how much you have, regardless of how hard you try. And death ensnares the whole human race, not just Anna, not just her husband. It ensnares the whole human race going all the way back to our first ancestor and it goes back to him because it comes from him. Think about it this way. Why is Anna a widow? Why did her husband die? You say, who knows, Bill? (laughs) The text doesn't tell us the cause. This part of scripture doesn't, but scripture back in Genesis 3 does. It tells us that Adam was given one very clear way of expressing that he loved and trusted God more than he loved and trusted anything else. God told him to not do one thing, to obey him, and Adam disobeyed, rejected that, did what God told him not to do. And God had told him that if he disobeyed, if he rejected the God of life who had given him life, then he would forfeit his own life, which Adam did. And in doing that, in that choice, because all of us come from him, he made that same choice for every one of his descendants as well. He passed his guilt along to each of us that we then express in our own ways. That's what Romans 5 tells us, that sin entered the world through one man and death through sin. And in this way, death spread to all people Because all sinned. It tells us that Adam spiritually murdered everyone who's descended from him. We're now born with this heart that inclines itself away from God. It's a heart that we then express by our own ways of ignoring God, disobeying him. And the proof that we're born with this spiritual bentness away from God, this inner spiritual death, the proof is that we all die physically. We're enslaved to death. And so regardless of what accident or illness happened to Anna's husband, ultimately he died because through Adam, his original ancestor, death entered the world and it touched him personally. Just like it would for Anna at some point in time, just like it does for you and me. The good news in Romans 5, that Romans 5 goes on to point out, is that if we can be infected by something like sin and death from our physical ancestor, we can also be infected by righteousness and life if we have a different spiritual ancestor. It's Romans 5.18. It tells us that through, our one, through one trespass, there's condemnation for everyone. So also, though, through one righteous act, there's justification leading to life for everyone. For just as through one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so also through the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That's the gospel in a really tight little form. What's it tell you? It tells you that Adam chose. He chose freely without being coerced. Adam chose to plunge the human race into sin and misery. Adam chose to enslave every one of us to death. And it's a death that we cannot buy ourselves out of. We're enslaved to physical death here. We're enslaved to being spiritually separated from the God that we need forever. And so anything that you spend your life trying to get on this earth, you'll lose one day because of death. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus Christ chose, freely chose without being coerced to redeem us from death. He chose to pay the death that we owe and to give us a life now and a future later that we could never hope for any other way that's why jesus is god's answer to the biggest problem of humanity we owe something that we cannot pay a death for our rejection of the god of life we owe what we cannot pay but god swaps with us tim keller puts it this way this is one of those little phrases you should probably memorize. Jesus lived the life we should have lived, and he died the death we should have died. And that opens for us this opportunity to have eternal life. If we trust him, Jesus, to make that trade with us like he says he wants to, we now live with him forever with the God that we need. That's why Anna thanks God when she sees Jesus this baby who interrupted her life. Because finally, here's someone who can do something about the problem that no one else can do anything about. Here's someone who can beat death, who can stop it from ruining people's lives forever. There's still suffering on earth at that moment, still is now. Anna herself would still die, but she gives thanks. (laughs) She doesn't look at the baby and complain that he's just a child. She doesn't say, well, God, he's nice. But if I'm going to be happy in this life, I really have to have a husband. She doesn't say, well, he's a great start. And then we'll go on from him. We'll add all these other things from the rest of the world onto him. And then we'll really be able to beat darkness. Instead, she gives thanks because if death is defeated, everything else can be restored as well. She gives thanks because now that the Redeemer is here, All lasting solutions come from him and move through him. Anna thought that glimpse was worth her entire life because he's the one who would give her back her life. Do you know how you can tell if you value God's solution as much as Anna did? Listen to yourself talk, listen to yourself as you talk to your friends and family about the problems of this world. Listen to yourself talk as you talk about the problems of your life. Listen to what you think are the biggest problems and the biggest solutions to those problems. If you think the greatest thing that you can talk about, if this comes pouring out of you like it did with Anna to the people all around her, if you think that the greatest thing is God's solution in providing someone to redeem his people both now and forever, then you and Anna are on the same page. And you're not wasting your life. God's summary of your life would say, you got it. And if you're not talking about Jesus in the way that she did, you could be. How? You do the same thing she did. You go to him. You ask him to teach you the same thing that Anna learned. You ask him to help you see that if the most important thing that you want in life can be taken away by death, then that thing is not big enough to spend your life trying to get. It's not big enough to lose your life for. If that is what you've been living for, something that can be taken away by death, then run to Jesus, worship him, pray, fast, do whatever it takes to ask him to help you see that he came to redeem you from that dead end as well so that he can bring you into something rich and robust. Lord Jesus, thank you Thank you that you came to redeem us. Thank you that you are the answer to the darkness in this world. Thank you, Lord, that systems and principles and ideas are not the solution. Thank you that you, a person, are. And thank you that we can know you. Thank you that you have decided that you want us to know you. Thank you that you broke into this world so we could see you, understand you, recognize you thank you that you did not come and just leave but that you've left your spirit here lord i pray that you would move our hearts draw us closer to you give us a hunger and a thirst for you like we hunger and thirst for nothing else and ask this in jesus name amen